When you can align with your best player, and he also happens to be your best teammate and person, it's an amazing combination. Like I think a lot of people listening might think, okay, Steph's top 10 pick in the NBA. He's one of the best players in the world now. Well, of course, Davidson would go to the Elite Eight. People want to just attribute it to Steph being an NBA player, but what's really magical to me about it looking back is he, he might have been the best teammate as well. When your best player is you know, your best teammate in person as well. Like that is an unbelievable combination. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Pursuit, a journey in the life of sports. I'm your host, Chris Mongilia, Director of Men's Basketball Operations at Princeton University. This podcast is all about exploring the intellectual approach to maximizing your ability. We will talk with accomplished professionals in the sports industry and learn what has allowed them to be able to succeed on their journey in the life of sports. The goal here is for listeners to collect as many high performance habits and behaviors as possible, and then be able to adopt and apply them into their own lives and careers. On this episode, I connected with Tim Sweeney from Connecticut College, and he spoke about his observations of a young Steph Curry during his time at Davidson. He really keyed in on the player-coach relationship that Steph had with his head coach, Bob McKillop and how paying attention to those interactions prepared him for life as a head coach now. His unique description of the cycle of reflection was a note that I really appreciated him sharing, listening to, and learning from. In general, Tim's mindfulness, his gratitude, and his appreciation for simplicity at times were all on display during this truly thoughtful conversation. I cannot wait to share this with you all. Our guest today is Tim Sweeney, the head men's basketball coach at Connecticut College. Tim has been in college coaching for 17 years. After an accomplished playing career at the University of Rochester, he started his coaching career there on staff before moving on to Davidson College as an assistant coach. During his time at Davidson, he worked with Steph Curry and was part of their magical ride to the Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament in 2006. After seven years as a Division I assistant, at Davidson, Bucknell, and Elon. He spent five seasons at Hobart College as their head coach. In 2017-2018, his team recorded the best winning percentage in their program's 108-year history, which included a 15-game winning streak, all leading him to his current job, as I mentioned earlier, at Connecticut College as their head men's basketball coach. The plot twist here is that Tim and I are from the same small town of Dumont, New Jersey, and if that wasn't enough, We grew up on the same street, seven years apart in age and growing up about 10 houses away from each other when we were younger. Tim is someone that I looked up to as a role model when I was a kid. He was always dribbling two basketballs up and down our block. But now as a professional and his achievements in coaching, they gave me great confidence to be able to reach the heights that I have today. So Tim, welcome and thanks for taking the time for this conversation. Chris. Great to be here. Uh, very kind introdu- introduction uh, from you on that. And yeah, isn't it amazing what a small world we live in? Um, I still fondly remember those days, dribbling by your house, annoying your mom, I think some nights <laughs> and mornings. And uh, 
man, just to see you grow up and, and uh, you know, get to your position now at Princeton is, uh, is a real joy and uh, obviously a, a testament to your hard work. And again, I'm just delighted to be here with you and uh, appreciate your kind words. Oh, for sure. I always remember being in my living room and hear a basketball bouncing down the street and like running to the window. And every time I looked, I was like, of course, it's Tim Sweeney going up and down the street. So thanks for joining us. Um, well, guess we'll get right into it. So like, what's what's going on right now? What's your your big focus of this week and, and current climate of, of what's going on? Yeah, with COVID and the uncertainty with all of our upcoming seasons, our focus here at the college, at Connecticut College, has been um, just the relationships with our current players. I mean, it's this is just unprecedented in terms of what those guys are dealing with and some of the decisions that they're going to ha- ultimately have to make here coming up this year. Um, so, we, Chris, we've spent a lot of time just communicating with our players, um, checking in with them, supporting them and what they're doing over the summer and, and really trying to – you know, consistently remain in touch with them. So, you know, we can keep growing those relationships. And then hopefully when we return and start playing again, you know, we're ahead of the curve. I really believe a lot of times when there's crisis or adversity, it's the time where you can really advance yourself or your program. So we're, we're really trying to, you know, make no excuses and take advantage of this time to get better. Do you, do you find yourself during this time leaning on any sort of a, a habit or a ritual to kind of help you get through these different times, you know, a normal work day is, is maybe not a nine to five in college coaching, but what we're, we're all going through right now is not normal. So is there anything that you're, you're kind of falling back on right now to get you through? Yeah, Chris, I I think, um, well, first of all, I would say this every day is a challenge. I think if you're really honest, I've certainly had some rough days, some days where I felt like I didn't get anything done, you know, and certainly I think that's probably a human natural uh, tendency for all of us right now. I'd say the one habit for me is just been meditation. Um, I picked that up about five years ago um, after becoming a head coach for the first time and didn't really know much about it and never really even studied that part of the world and, and just really got into meditation and, you know, really try to religiously do it for at least 10 minutes a day every day and, you know, come pretty close to um, holding that standard. So, I'd say certainly the meditation has been important for me personally. Um, I'd also say one benefit or sort of quirky benefit of the conditions we face is that we're home all the time. So I have a three and a half year old son, Henry, who um, is a constant source of excitement. So he certainly keeps me grounded and um, in the present moment. So those would be the two, two things I'd point to. Who, who puts you on the meditation? I think a lot of people, um, are, are starting to lean that way. At least some of the podcasts and books I'm reading are people are recommending that. Who was the first person maybe to bring that to your attention? Yeah, it's funny. I, there wasn't anyone specific. I didn't have a guide. I didn't have a yogi or anyone teach me, you know, how to do this. I didn't, you know, I, I researched it, you know, transcendental meditation costs a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of different avenues to approach it. I, I just stumbled across it. Quite frankly, I was reading a book called Principles, author is Ray Dalio, who ran a hedge fund for many, many years. Um, And actually a book I'd suggest to any of the listeners is a great reference guide to um, sort of building your own principles for life. But um, either way, I I stumbled across it in some of his writings and again, researched it on my own, figured out a way to, you know, kind of practice it on my own and, you know, download an app 
called One Giant Mind. So again, if this helps anybody out there, One Giant Mind is a is a is a web based app. It's free and it sort of uh, yeah kick started a a habit for me that I've enjoyed uh, building on. Everyone kind of has their lane in their profession, something that they're maybe specialty at or, or something that they're they find to really excel at. What would you say that your lane is inside of, you know, your profession as a, a head men's basketball coach? Well, Chris, I would address that question uh, from a couple of angles. The first one is I felt really fortunate. I'm, I'm sure uh, under Mitch's tutelage at Princeton, you probably can echo these sentiments, but uh, the people that I worked for, Coach Bob McKillop at Davidson, Mike Neer at Rochester, Dave Paulson at Bucknell, and Matt Matheny at Elon, all, of my, all my mentors – uh, encouraged me to um, learn every aspect of the of the trade and and to really uh, they and they all allowed me to get my hands dirty in all those areas so I'm very grateful to them always for that and I feel like that really allowed me to become well-rounded as a head coach and, and I certainly think you're right Chris that I think we all need to understand just like our players right like what what's our niche what's our role what are we really good at I, I tend to gravitate towards kind of the whole notion of player development you know, we were laughing about me dribbling down the street when we were kids. You know, I, I feel like I was a, a very much self-taught player. I didn't have anyone in my family who was an athlete or college basketball player. And, and so I was, you know, just hungry for information. We'd go to the old five-star camps, all that, and just write down as much as I could. And then, again, go, go do it, trial and error. So I'd say right now I'm most passionate about player development and, and what we talk to our guys here at Connecticut college. And it's a little tricky because we're division three, so we don't have as much access to our guys. So there's no question. It's so critical that each guy in our program on their own attacks this kind of development piece with a lot of their own um, intelligence and, and intensity. So really trying to guide guys on, on how to approach that, how to put together a plan and then carry it forward to, to then see improvement. That's really that's really where um, my passion lies, Chris. And, you know, at Elon and um, as an assistant, you know, I spent a lot of time with players and just trying to help them get better. And then even as a head coach, and of course it's a constant learning process, but trying to build in those opportunity, opportunities, even as a head coach with all the different responsibilities we have to worry about to make sure that guys on an individual level are, are improving their games and improving their life. You mentioned, you know, as a head coach, your role changes a little bit. Usually, like, the player development kind of falls on the assistant coach. So how are you still keeping your your hands in the weeds there now as, an, as a head coach? Are you delegating that to your assistant? Or are you taking time for one-on-one -on -one conversations? What's that look like? Well, Chris, you know from being a keen that the levels have a different uh, staff structure. So we don't have 13 guys like you guys have over there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we uh, – you know, so with one or two assistants, maybe uh, the good news is I still get to really be involved with the development piece. Right. And I feel like it's that important, uh, you know, that we will not sacrifice that element of it to just get other things done. So I would say, actually, I'm still heavily involved in each individual in the program, um, how to help them get better. Uh, I certainly think as you get to the higher levels, especially division one, you can have a little bit more hierarchy and, and maybe more of a breakdown on who does what and, and who works with who, but you know, where we are, Chris at, at Con college, it's, it's all hands on deck approach. Um, I, I'm very much involved with, with each guy and, and sort of the, the plan. It's probably the question that you knew was coming. So you witnessed Steph Curry his first two years at Davidson. 
can you just talk about what maybe his player development was like and how maybe you were involved with that or some of the things that you witnessed during those two years? Yeah. Well, first I'd say this, um, coach McKillop, you know, in hindsight, just was an amazing mentor to Steph. And I think anytime you read things that, that Steph will put in print when he talks about coach McKillop, he references coaches mentorship and, Coach had an amazing ability to be really hard on Steph and push him, but also give him the space and the freedom to explore and improve and make mistakes. So that balance, as we know as coaches, is really hard to, to achieve. And, you know, Steph, I think, references that quite a bit uh, when he's asked about Davidson. You know, Coach gave him that space to just improve. And, you know, Coach, coach McKillop's attention to detail, I certainly participated in all of that with him and with the rest of the staff. In you know, in helping Steph. And let's be honest, he came armed with a lot of innate and also ingrained ability for, given to him from his father and the NBA experience. And, you know, you do all the, the research, like just kind of like watching high level performers can help. And certainly being able to do that as a, as a, as a boy was great for him. So he came, you know, way ahead of the curve. Um, Coach McKill was superb and like kind of developing that and bringing it out of him. I'd say my role was a very supporting role. Um, quite frankly, like, you know, get him some shots, rebound, uh, be a supportive. And I was 25 at the time, so I wasn't too far removed from being a player myself. Um, funny thing is, you know, at Davidson, very small private liberal arts college, there, the walk-on situation was rough. So <laughs> I was actually still playing in practice. And, um, you know, Chris, you'll appreciate this as a coach. If you picture sort of that coach's huddle, before you resume, resume live action, what would happen is, you know, if I'm on scout team, the other four guys would match up with the other four guys. And when I left the coach's huddle, guess who was standing by himself? Steph. Yeah. That makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. Good luck with I, that. I, yeah. And I ended up guarding him quite a bit. And, um, you know, that was obviously a nightmare. And I learned <laughs> quickly uh, how good, a, you know, a future NBA player really is up close, you know. And so, yeah, it, it was definitely uh, – just just a ground level um, view of a top performer and, and watching him improve. I, I'll never forget, you know, we played Maryland Steph's freshman year and lost in the first round. This game was actually in Buffalo, New York. And you know from playing the NCAA tournament, Chris, when you lose and we lost a, a very close game to Maryland, um, who at the time was a top 20 team, uh, you know how it works. Like we were the first game of the tournament. We were on the tarmac getting on that private jet at five o'clock at night. So yeah. we were back in Charlotte by seven back on campus. And, you know, back when you were still in school, Chris, we, we had uh, film was a lot harder. So, yeah. um, you know, we got back and all the coaches wanted cut ups of, you know, the, the loss. And so I stayed in the office and started to cut that up. And, you know, sure enough, I hear a ball and, you know, in our arena and, and sort of it's, it's a very secluded place. I don't know if you've been to Davidson's campus, but you know, there's never any students in there. So I kind of like wonder like, okay, what's going on? And, you know, if, if it wasn't Steph in there shooting when we got back and, you know, look, he had 30 points as a freshman in the NCAA tournament and he had the work ethic to just immediately get back out and he wasn't happy with what had happened. And people have asked, I, I kind of tell them there's, there's no secret. It's, it's an insane amount of hard work, um, but hard work with a purpose. Nah, that's great. I, I remember when we were in the tournament, we were actually also the first game of the whole NCAA tournament Thursday, 12 o'clock start. We had lost, and I was home that night watching the late games, you know, in the comfort of my living room, being like, how was I in that arena today <laughs> coaching in that game? It's, it's insane how quickly they turn it over. 
that's crazy, Chris. I didn't realize you guys went through the same thing. It's, it's one of the most jarring, like almost lonely experiences. I can, it, it feels like you weren't in the tournament. It feels yeah. like you never even played in it, your home and right with your popcorn and the games are still on. It's, it's amazing. Uh, that behind the scenes look, but it's, yeah, that's a tough day when you, when you lose that noon game, it's, uh, and you're home that night. It's, yeah. it's a jar, it's a jarring experience. Just going back to Coach McKillop's role with Steph, how like important was that for your head coaching development to see that relationship? And, and have you adopted a little bit of that mentality from him? Oh, no question. You know, I learned a lot from that specific relationship. One was what I referenced, Coach's ability to sort of push, but also give, give freedom to, to explore and make mistakes. I think – um, you know, certainly another very important factor was coach genuinely cared for each guy and, you know, Steph and everyone on that team and those teams felt that. So that's an important factor, you know, underneath that. And, and so, you know, I, I think those are the biggest things. I think the final piece I would add to that, that I've taken forward is that when you can align with your best player and he also happens to be your best teammate and person, it's an amazing combination. Like, I think a lot of people listening might think, okay, Steph's top 10 pick in the NBA. He's one of the best players in the world now. Well, of course, Davidson would go to the Elite Eight. Well, what you have to remember is that, and you know this well, there's plenty of teams that either don't get to the tournament. I think of Ben Simmons and LSU, <laughs> you know, not to call him out. or But there's been countless numbers of great players who don't who don't make a run in the tournament. And then let's face it, you know, to get to the elite eight is so difficult. Um, it's almost absurd. So what, you know, I almost think sometimes people want to just attribute it to Steph being an NBA player, but what's really magical to me about it looking back is he, he might've been the best teammate as well. My guy, Steve Rossiter will get mad at me from Staten Island. He was one of our juniors and he was a great, one of the best kids I've ever coached and probably tied with Steph I'll say, but yeah. I mean, but when your best player is, you know, your best teammate in person as well. Like that is an unbelievable combination. So I guess that's a recruiting thing too. If you can find that somehow, like um, your team is going to, you know, reach its potential. And then we just had a lot of good pieces around him. But, but nonetheless, where I was going with that, Chris, is that coach really cultivated that relationship and built upon that. And, and I think when you give your better players that power and autonomy and, and they're the right people, you can, you can achieve some really special things. No, that's, that's awesome. So we talked about player development. I'd like to talk about maybe your professional development a little bit. So one of my favorite books is The Talent Code uh, by Daniel Coyle. And in that book, he talks about hotbeds and the word ignition is used. Basically, it's a person believing that they can do something because they see someone else that they can relate to succeeding and accomplishing at a high level. So certainly, not to toot your own horn, but or your, to your horn is you certainly were an ignition point for my career. Just thinking back, like being able to see you knowing like, Hey man, he grew up on the same block as me. If he can do it, I can do it. Just going back to the beginning of your career. Was there anyone that was an ignition for you to start your journey? Well, first of all, um, thanks, Chris. I, I probably forced you into that just by constantly being near your house. So often it was almost like <laughs> osmosis where you had to, <laughs> you had to see what was going on. Um, but no, and, and just to drop this in here, I, I can still finally remember your dad coaching, you know, the football teams at Bergen County. And, you know, you come from a great coaching background with your, with your dad. And, you know, he was certainly early on in my life, someone, 
you know, as crazy as this sounds that you see out there that is a coach for a living and you, you know, that's, you can, I think you can appreciate, you can, you model that. So somebody lived down the street, you've kind of seen that up close and almost playing football my senior year for your dad. And he was pretty pissed off when I decided not to. Um, he's going to listen to me. You know, he's going to listen to this. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and coach Clark heard about it and kind of got a little miffed. So anyway, it's long story, but we don't want to bore the listeners, but anyway, but people like your dad and, and those growing up that were coaches and, and great people and role models in the community, certainly, probably for me, right, uh, started the, the thought of becoming a coach. I would say more than a single person, my experience as a player at Rochester is probably what was the ignition for me. Um, I played for a great coach, Mike Neer, who won over 600 games. My junior year, we played in the Division Three Final Four, lost in overtime in the semifinals. And so, you know, that was a painful loss, but we, we had a great run and a great couple of years uh, for me as a player. And that really was the ignition for me, uh, learning the game from him, learning how he taught it, seeing a team develop over time and then achieve at a high level. I think that's probably what ignited my passion, Chris, for, for coaching. And then, you know, certainly, again, you know, guys like your dad, but then even in basketball, like you look at Hubie Brown, Brendan Sir, guys from Burton County that even when you're young, right, you kind of know like, okay, these are the coaches, Bill Parcells, um, folks like that, you know, sort of put that coaching bug in the back of my mind. And I think probably took it from there. That's great. That's great. Just kind of pivot a little bit here, kind of a segment we're going to try to do called quick hitters, where I just give you a couple of things to, to rattle off. Maybe some people listening could take away some positive resources for them to go and, and research a little bit. So if you had three books that you would most likely recommend to someone to read, what would those three books be and, and maybe summary and why you would recommend it? Great question. I love to read. So I might give you like more than three, maybe five, just to rattle them <laughs> hey, off. Whatever you want, whatever you want. I don't have many hobbies, Chris. So reading is one of them. Um, Inner Game of Tennis, Timothy Galway, amazing book for performance and helping, I think helping players, uh, achieve sort of, I guess, what we would call that relaxed concentration on the court. And then for coaches, really powerful in the sense of challenging yourself to find better ways to teach and better ways to sort of allow people to, you know, sort of instead of explicit instruction, more implicit and give players room to, to get better and, and sort of figure things out on their own. So I'd say inner game of tennis. Um, the second one that came to mind is Can't Stop Me, David Goggins. I just – it was to me that was like a really entertaining read he writes in a style it's very blunt and direct and he swears and but it's quick and to the point but I think it's a you know obviously a great message about redemption personal redemption and sort of achievement um you know overcoming obstacles and um so that that was a that was one of the better ones I enjoyed and then I also referenced the book earlier principles by Ray Dalio I don't think this is a book you sit down and read cover to cover uh, I utilize it as a reference source but really have taken a lot from his writings in the sense of sort of trying to codify your principles in life. And, you know, one of the ones I've used with our teams is, you know, pain plus reflection equals progress. That's one of my favorites from him. You have to go through a certain amount of pain or struggle. And then if you can reflect on it and learn from it, you know, you make progress. I think it's like a simple, he has a lot of simple ideas in his, his work that I think can resonate with coaches, people in business, anywhere in, in your personal life. Um, so those would be the three ones. I, I just finished reading a book, Natural Born Heroes. I just wanted to mention it by Chris McDougall. It's a great book. It's about the island of Crete in World War II and how um, 
just a band of sort of ragtag guys on the island um, came together to kidnap a German general from a compound on the island. But it's just a great book about sort of, what's the best way to say this? Uh, you know, how, how complicated we've made things, right? Like it just talks about the island of Crete and how the people that lived there, especially back in the 40s and 30s were, you know, were in just tremendous shape. They could run marathons and, and not blink, but they, they lived simply and they lived, you know, on the island and didn't make things too complicated. So that was a really enjoyable read for those of you who are into history and, and things like that. And then I guess the last one um, would be The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh, who uh, the legendary San Francisco 49ers coach. I, I feel like that's a book I, I utilized, particularly in becoming a head coach initially, you know, creating, you know, our standards and sort of guidelines on how we want to, op- how we want to operate. So there you go. I gave you five. I tried to do it fast, though. Overachiever, overachiever. <laughs> Inner Game of Tennis was my first quarantine book, believe it or not. Back in March, I had it in my bookshelf, and I was like, all right, I guess I had a lot of time on my hands, so let's tackle this one first because everyone recommends that book, and it was really good. So next one, everyone's a social media guy now if you're, if you're working in coaching. So I know you have a Twitter. I don't know if you have an Instagram, but uh, is there the most interesting person that you follow on Twitter or Instagram? Not necessarily for – sports but just they're intriguing and you can learn something from them well i'll give you a funny one i i follow shooter mcgavin who <laughs> <laughs> i like it that's uh, good yeah i i think you know i think we probably take ourselves too seriously so i like to like to check in on his account and, and get a laugh from time to time um yeah actually as of late actually a, a, a recent follow of mine and i didn't discover this guy uh is brad stolberg and then steve magnus and they wrote a book together called The Passion Paradox, I believe. I hope I have that right. But either way, they're, they're both on Twitter. I do, I do not have Instagram. I have Twitter. And I'm sort of a – I'm an information collector. I don't, I don't do a lot of posting, but uh, use it as a resource. And, and, yeah, Steve Magnus and Brad Stolberg are two guys that sort of – you know, they just have some very simple, you know, advice about, you know, health and wellness. And, again, I, I said this about the book I gave you before um, – natural born heroes, just sort of a, like a throwback, Chris, to, you know, keeping things simple, you know, just simple reminders. Like, you know, if you don't get enough sleep, you know, that's a problem or, you know, if you're not eating healthy. And I, I just think sometimes we, we're guilty, especially as coaches of trying to find like a hack or a shortcut or the next big thing. And, and a lot of times the answer is just staring right at us. It's, you know, maybe you should sleep a little bit more or drink more water or for something sure. as simple as that. So I, I think those, those two are good reminders for me on, on social media to, to sort of keep it simple. Last one on quick hitters is most meaningful speech that you've ever heard and why? Probably my favorite speech that was memorable um, in terms of my career was the uh, 2014 Texas commencement speech by uh, Navy Admiral William McRaven. I knew, I knew you were my guy. That's my favorite one. Hands down. Is it, is it really? I, I, this was not arranged. I can promise the listeners. I, no, I, um, you know, and he wrote a book called make your bed, which I'm sure you've read as well, Chris, but yeah, it's just, it's just an amazing, um, reminder of, you know, and and you know how a commencement speech works, right? You're sort of releasing the graduates to go conquer the world. And he reminds them, well, you know, start, start by making your bed. (laughs) And that simple analogy means a lot. And I think, you know, especially with the climate we're in now with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the social unrest and just what we're going through, it's a great reminder to like think globally, but act locally, make your bed and take care of what's right in front of you. And I think, um, 
you know, uh, I just think that's so important. So yeah, that would probably be my, my most memorable uh, speech if I had to pick one. Nah, that's great. That's, that's so funny that we have the same one. All right. Getting back into things. I just want to touch upon what you said in that book. So if I had that right, pain plus reflection equals progress. Is that right? right? So one of my questions I had written down to ask you is kind of a weird one. What's your favorite failure? That's a great question. I mean, I could probably point to a couple. Um, If you're going to make me uh, pick one or can I give you a couple? You can give me a couple. Well, I think it's important because uh, I think failure, I think we need to define failure together. Um, and then, you know, I think that would be uh, important maybe to, to do on the podcast. I mean, you know, in preparing for this, you know, you and I chat a little bit and, and you had written adversity and failure. And so I kind of made a note that, you know, adversity to me is like, you know, someone getting sick and, you know, maybe someone in your family getting sick, which, you know, which I've unfortunately had to deal with. And, um, and our family has to deal with and, and things like that. I, I consider adversity being, you know, things that are, um, you know, life threatening or, or just really, you know, really change your, your scope, right. You know, in a life sense. And so I would say, Chris, that I've been incredibly blessed to not have too many of those instances. Um, failures, uh, I feel like, uh, the way we define it sort of dictates what's a failure and what's not. I mean, I feel like I've had a million failures, so I would say one failure early in my career that was very helpful and I would point to is that I interviewed nine times for a job and didn't get one. And I just think that's something that's important to say out loud and, and something I reminded myself of is that this is a very competitive industry, especially coaching. Um, and I know this is geared to, to coaches. And I just think that um, sometimes we can hold ourselves to such a high bar. I think everyone needs to realize that it's incredibly difficult and there's an incredibly large number of qualified people that are really good. So it took me a while to sort of understand that failing like that and maybe not getting the job wasn't an indictment on my character or the fact that I wasn't necessarily good enough. It was just, there's other really good people out there. Um, so I would point to that. I think early in my career is like, again, Oh, for nine. And I think initially I, it would really bug me and, it, you know, it sort of slow me down. And I think over time I came to appreciate that, that's just how it works. And I think a lot of people could probably, that probably resonates with a lot of people listening is, is that you're going to have a lot of setbacks like that. Um, you just have to keep going and, and keep believing in what you're doing. Um, I think the second, you know, failure, so to speak, would just be, you know, becoming a head coach and, and realizing that there's way more that you don't know. <laughs> and I think that's one of the first things that happens. And I think any, any new head coach or someone who, went from assistant to head coach will probably acknowledge that, that you, you hit this point where you realize, wow, there's a lot more out there that I thought I knew that I really didn't have a, an understanding of. And, and I would point to early uh, my time at Hobart, like we struggled my second year um, after losing a lot of seniors. And I think I had this notion that we would just get it going and no problem. There'd be no drop off. And I think it was a real splash of cold water professionally that, Nope, that's not how it works. You know, it's a process. You can't you can't skip steps, and it, and it takes a while to build uh, a meaningful program and, and, a, and a good team. And and I'm and I'm constantly learning, Chris, from further failures. Right? We um, I took over a program here at Connecticut College that had been struggling, and and we went four and twenty this year, my first year. So um, obviously that's unacceptable for us, and um, we're going to work really hard to improve that. And I think we will quickly, um, but you know, again, I think sort of going through losing, 
you know, can be a very motivating and, and very uh, humbling and, and thought provoking exercise. No, that was great answers. I know I just dragged you through the mud a little bit talking about failure. Now I'm going to flip it and say earlier in the introduction, we talked about that 15 game winning streak that you had at Hobart. So what are you feeling during that time period of, you know, extreme success, quote unquote? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting as, as I look back on that win streak, which is obviously from a historical standpoint, a big deal. Here's the crazy irony, and you'll probably laugh. I don't remember what that felt like as a, as a collective. I think you become so immersed in the moment that I don't really have a good recollection of what it felt like. I can tell you that, you know, we had an unbelievable group of guys on that team. Uh, we, we were talented um, and we really had come together. We had lost the game down at Randolph-Macon, who was a top 20 team. We lost them in a, in a holiday tournament, like really brutal loss. We, we controlled the game. We were up four, I think with a minute and a half to go and ended up losing. And that really galvanized our group. I think it just galvanized all of us to, to do a little bit more, to come a little bit closer together. Um, and that's, that's what led to that win streak. And, but, you know, looking back, it was just, you know, sort of a, as I said earlier, an accumulation of a lot of work over time that crescendoed into that. But yeah, I, I think like anything in life, right. It's like, you don't overthink it. You're in the moment, you go play to play game to game. And, um, you know, we, we were fortunate to get incredibly hot there. Yeah. It, it's so funny. Like I'm the one asking the questions, but as you said that, uh, similarly, my first year at Princeton, we had, I believe, a 19-game winning streak. And I feel the same way that I don't even remember what that felt like. And the start of that win streak was after losing to Monmouth, who was, you know, very big and prominent at that time. We played like a, a game in the 90s, and it was one of the craziest college basketball games I've been a part of, just super up and down tempo of offense. And that kind of failure put us over the edge we were supposed to have a successful season and that kind of skyrocketed uh, that streak and it just become you become numb to the success which is crazy because it sounds like what we're getting at is that we're learning a lot more from our little failures or disappointments more so than we are on the success of things kind of along that basis how important is reflection and self-assessment in your job and really in life i mean i think it's it's so critical. Um, I think simply said, if you want to advance in a particular area in your life, reflection is of the utmost importance. Being able to analyze and measure how you're doing in something is right. Sort of the, to me, the, the biggest factor of how to then see improvement. Now I would say, I think um, and I'm probably certainly guilty of this. And I think we all know people who are, you, you can overdo it. You can overanalyze. You can maybe reflect too much. Um, I think reflection needs to be balanced with action. And I think that's probably one of the hardest uh, tensions to come to terms with is, yes, we need reflection, we need analysis, and then we need action. You know, and action is going to produce the results, either good or bad, that you can then analyze again, right? So I think it kind of makes sense. There has to be a lot of, a lot of action and deliberate action. And then, you know, that reflection is how you refine it, improve it, and then, and then go out there and do it again. And I think you'll probably laugh at this, but I think part of that crazy enough, Chris, is that um, you kind of have to not worry about how you look. Like you can't be afraid to look bad. And uh, I think that's just something that um, it, it can be hard to coach that. It can be hard to teach that, particularly now in, 
And I'll be honest, I have a hard time sometimes for me understanding just how pervasive kind of the social media component is for our players. Like they've grown up with it. It's natural to them. Um, I'm really trying to embrace it more and more every year. It, you know, it's just how they've been raised. And so kind of how you appear to others and come off on, on some of those platforms, whether for good or bad is important to our guys. And so uh, I think, you know, tying this into coaching, like one of the hard things is getting guys to understand that that's not really reality, right? Like what we're doing in the gym together, what you're doing kind of off camera behind closed doors that's real. That's really what's happening. And then what people present to the public and what you consume on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah, it can be real, but it's also, it's very, it can be very carefully crafted to look a certain way. So I, I just think that's a really important um, battleground. I think we all fight on now as coaches that, you know, there's, there's sort of that push pull there. And, and I think, you know, getting guys to be comfortable with just making a ton of mistakes and, screwing up and trying again is, is really important. It's not necessarily uh, outside of, you know, our gyms and where we teach. That's not necessarily how the rest of their, their life works. What would you say right now in your job that you need to work on the most along those same lines of reflection and how are you getting that feedback? Is it all self-reflection? Is it self-assessment or as a head coach, are you taking critical feedback from an assistant or somebody else? Maybe that works in the department. Well, let me work backwards, Chris. I think when you take feedback, you always have to analyze where that feedback's coming from. Um, <laughs> Ray Dalio, who I've referenced now multiple times, kind of refers to sort of a, he calls it a believability weighted index. I know that's a mouthful, but a believability weighted index. In other words, if Bob McKillop tells me something about my coaching, you know, I'm going to really be locked in. Or if Mitch Henderson makes an observation, you know, I'm going to really be locked in. If, if the guy who makes my sandwich at, at crown pizza down the road from me tells me about my coaching, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to listen as much. So yeah, no, that's great. You know, I, I think there's that element to it. Um, but I think there's all sorts of ways. I think, I think taking feedback from players is important. I think that's an area to be specific where I need to continue to improve is um, continue to allow our players to have autonomy and give them the ability to speak up because I think, I think we all learn a lot more than we realize from our players. Um, and if they're put in the environment where they feel comfortable communicating some of that to you, it can be really important. Another area I've been, we were fortunate here this year to work with uh, kind of an outside consulting firm that is built to help coaches and, you know, they, they did a personality assessment of our team and coaching staff. And, you know, I graded really high on drive and analysis, which I'm sure doesn't shock you. <laughs> um, and then I graded really low and sort of like the supportive, um, friendly category. So I think sort of the intensity of the coaching and things like that. So that was, that was really helpful, though, Chris, to see it on paper and just say, you know, it's definitely an area I've always been aware of. But, okay, you know, can we – continue to figure out ways to get better at, you know, supporting our players, being, a, you know, being a better listener, truly, you know, being open again, like I was saying earlier to, to feedback from, from the guys and, you know, from the assistant coaches and, and whatnot. Um, I just think that's important. So yeah, kind of, again, taking it from a lot of different angles, but those would be the, the main avenues for feedback. What character trait would you say has been the most pivotal for your success? 
probably if I had to boil it down to one would just be intensity. Um, I've probably made, as I said earlier, a ton of mistakes. I'll probably continue to make them. I feel that I've been able to overcome some of that and, you know, can kind of hang my hat at whether it was as a player or now as a coach and just sort of the ability to sort of be intense, you know, concentrate for long periods of time, you know, stay, stay in the fight, so to speak. Right. Like I, I don't think and you, you had the misfortune of probably having to watch me play too much, but like, you know, I wasn't blowing by anybody. I wasn't going to out jump anybody. I wasn't going to probably why I coach, right? Like it was sort of, I had to figure out a lot of other ways to survive and compete. So I think that would probably be the one element, you know, I, I need to continue to hang my head on in this profession is that. I got two more for you, Tim. So what is something that you were surprised to learn about the business getting into it? I think everyone has a, you know, a zoomed out approach and, and thought about what they think college basketball coaching is. Like, I know I get those questions. They're like, Oh man, I saw you on ESPN. That's so cool. I'm like, yeah, but you have no idea like what it takes to get to that moment. So being in the business for 17 years, what is something that you were surprised to learn about it? Yeah, that's a really good one. I feel like you could take that a lot of different directions, but I'd say I'll give you a couple quickly. I think anytime you go from like successful player or some kind of playing career to coaching career, number one, you don't realize the volume of work that happens behind the scenes. I don't have to tell you this, you know, you're, you're running the operations at Princeton, which is to me, the Ivy league is, you know, such a big time league. It's, it's just big time basketball. I mean, the amount of work that just goes into practice logistics, travel, you know, just the daily routine of like making sure your players are in the right position to, just be able to concentrate on basketball, that's an enormous uh, workload. I mean, we're talking about easily a nine to five schedule just to do that. And then what people don't realize, I think, Chris, is that on top of that, right, Mitch is probably asking you to study scouting film and do other things. So then you're, then you're going home and you're not done and you're doing film breakups at night and you're, you know, you're, maybe you're talking to a player on the phone about his dorm key. And there's just a million things that, go into the behind the scenes work that as a player, you don't appreciate how hard those coaches are, <laughs> are actually working for you behind the scenes. Um, you know, so that would be probably the, that was the biggest sort of like aha moment for me. It was like the first couple of years coaching, just kind of like looking at the to-do list for the staff and going, Oh wow, we have a lot to do. <laughs> and like, we don't have a, and we don't have a lot of time. And yeah. as a player, you just kind of show up to the games and eat and, think like, oh, this is, you know, this is easy. Like, come on, guys. But uh, I, I think that's sort of uh, anyone who ends up getting into coaching will, will appreciate just the volume of work and, and how it may seem mundane to an outsider, but how that work can be, you know, can influence whether you win or lose a game, right? I mean, that's sort of what we're talking about here. So all those factors at some point matter. Last one I got for you, and you can take this however you want to take it. Spin it person, coach, however you want. What defines you as a person? Oh, that's a heavy one, Chris. <laughs> I'm just trying to get down to it, down to the bone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to, I mean, let's take it this way. So mm -hmm. at the end of your coaching career, whenever that happens, you know, hopefully it's 30, 40 years from now, what will you look back and want people to define you by? Like what defines Tim Sweeney as the person, yeah. person slash coach? Chris, that was an amazing Final question. I hope I can do it justice with a coherent answer. 
I would say the number one thing I hope, um, you know, if I were able to retire after a long coaching career that um, you know, people would think or say is that I coached as hard as I could. Uh, you know, I love my family as hard as I could. And, you know, I just got the most out of both myself and, and the people around me in a way that helped develop them into the kind of people that they wanted to be. Um, the type of, you know, help them create the kind of families that they aspire to someday have and essentially just create um, just a very small, tiny, little microscopic little plot of legacy in the world that, um, you know, values hard work, you know, being good people and, and you know, just competing in as hard as you can at, at whatever it is you choose to do. So I, I'd say if I had to sum it up, that would be the way I would describe uh, what I hope to be able to achieve and what I hope people will look back and, and think uh, when it's all said and done. That was a great answer. I don't know why you were worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this wow. has been a lot of fun, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Uh, it means a lot to me and uh, really thanks for joining us. Well, Chris, I just want to say thanks to you. Um, I really enjoyed uh, being able to be on this with you. Um, you know, certainly our personal connection and, you know, being from the same literal street <laughs> in, in little Dumont, New Jersey is, is pretty incredible and just want you to know every every chance I get to brag on you and uh, with coaching colleagues and, and those, you know, who are from our little area of the country, uh, I, I take the opportunity to do so and it's been just a lot of fun to watch you uh, develop and continue to get better and better at what you do and um, I'm certainly expecting to see you on TV. Uh, you know, going forward for a long time. So, you know, wish you the best and uh, just want to say thanks again for having me on your on your show.